Welcome to another edition of Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Miller here. Happy to have you with us and happy to welcome back horticulturist Jessica Walliser. She's the award-winning author of seven gardening books, including the Amazon bestseller. It was titled, or is titled, Plant Partners, a Science-Based Guide to Companion Planting for the Vegetable Garden. And she's co-founder of the popular gardening website, SavvyGardening.com. So as we talk with her, I hope you'll join in with your questions. I always think the show works best when we get calls from people who have, and we have a smart bunch here, a smart bunch of listeners. So if you have a question about gardening or something that's happened in your garden the last few years, I hope you'll join in. Number to call is 800-642-1234, 1-800-642-1234, or you can send an email to ideas at wpr.org, ideas at wpr.org. Jessica Walliser, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Well, thanks, Larry. It's nice to be back. You wrote a great book about plants that grow well together. Maybe start just by talking about how that works. Sure. So um, companion planting is a long-held method of combining plants together to see some positive results. And, um, you know, a lot of those plant partnerships have been passed down from gardener to gardener or from farmer to farmer through the generations, but there wasn't a whole lot of science to back them up. And being a science nerd that I am, I thought about the fact that there there wasn't a book out there that had <laughs> these plant com- combinations in them that were backed by some research. And so I started to kind of dig in to the existing university and um, governmental agricultural facility research. And it turns out there was plenty, um, plenty of ways that we can combine different plants together to get positive results in the garden. And so that's what the book Plant Partners is all about. It's a, a scientific look at the art of companion planting. So the, the, the what happens when uh, a couple of plants are paired together? What's, what's going on that uh, makes it better? Sure. So there's basically, I like to say there's seven main benefits of partnering certain plants together in the vegetable garden. The first comes in the form of maybe soil preparation or conditioning the soil. And that would be something like using a cover crop in your vegetable garden. The second one would be weed management. So in that case, we're looking at using one plant to help control the weeds around another plant, something like living mulch or things like that. Uh, The third reason is for pest management. And that's probably the most popular reason that people companion plant. Um, Disease management is another one. Um, enhancing biological control, which would mean bringing in all those good beneficial insects that eat the bad pests, Uh, and pollination. We can actually partner plants together to improve pollination rates in our vegetable garden and get better fruit set. Um, and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One more would be would be support. Would be to actually provide physical support in the form of like a living trellis for a plant. So that one's kind of like a little bit more on the ornamental side. Um, whereas the others are a little bit more on the actual, you know, physical benefit to the plant side. Yeah. All good ideas there. What are some of the best uh, pairings in your mind? 
Sure. So the ones that I often talk about the most that people ask the most questions about, of course, are the pest management ones, because that's what sort of the classic reason that people like to companion plant. Um, so we can partner these plants together to control pests by we can use them as trap crops, which is basically we're partnering plants together because one is more attractive to the pest than the other. And so they leave the one plant alone. So this, one of my favorite partnerships for this is always planting radishes around your tomato plants if you have issues with flea beetles, because flea beetles much prefer radishes and the greens, they're greens, to mm. tomato plants. So when you plant your tomato transplants out in the spring, always make sure that you have a radish crop around them and you won't have any damage from flea beetles on your tomato plants because they'll be too busy with the radishes. Um, another one that is a good and useful trap crop um, is in the uh, squash patch. If you grow a lot of winter squash and you have those terrible squash vine borers, uh, well, you definitely want to plant a particular squash called blue Hubbard squash kind of near your other types of squash because those squash bugs much prefer the blue Hubbard squash. So they'll go over there uh, and leave the crop that you really want to harvest alone. So that's a method called trap cropping. But you can use these plant combinations also to deter pests, disrupt their egg laying, disrupt their feeding. Um, one of my favorites for that method is to always plant nasturtiums around my summer squash because there was an interesting bit of research done at an Iowa State University farm, research farm, where they counted the number of squash bugs on the summer squash, zucchini plants, basically, yeah. that were interplanted with nasturtiums. And they found that there was a, a far lower number of squash bugs when these two plants were partnered together. So this one, anybody can do in their backyard. That is really cool. I, you know, let's flip the coin. Are there a bit here? Are there some plants that you should not plant together? Well, really, I mean, plants kind of interact with each other in a lot of different ways. And one of the ways that they interact is, is competition. So that's like a negative reaction, right? Plants growing together really closely together will share resources from the same space, right? They'll be drawing water from the same area of the soil. They'll be pulling nutrients out of the same uh, part of the soil. They might be competing for light. So in that case, there can be competition, where they don't get along, but it's not really a matter of one plant hating another plant or something <laughs> like that. You know, that, that doesn't really, it doesn't really work that way. The only time we really see that is with an issue called allelopathy, which is where a plant's roots actually release chemicals that inhibit the growth of nearby plants. And sometimes that can restrict growth, but Typically, really allelopathic plants are not things that we would be growing in a vegetable garden anyway. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, that, that might have a bigger part to play in the forest or in our ornamental plantings, but not so much in our vegetable garden. It's all really, uh, really cool stuff. And, of course, uh, go out, you go into much uh, more detail, kind of fun detail, too. <laughs> As a matter of fact, you're, you're, you're a good writer uh, in your uh, uh, award-winning book. Um, what is it? Plant Partners, a science-based guide to companion planting for the vegetable garden. <laughs> that, I indeed, think I got the title indeed. right. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because the, the book that I did prior to this one, which was Attracting Beneficial Bugs to Your Garden, talks yeah. all about the, the part of companion planting that deals with biological control, bringing in those good bugs. And so that book, that book came first. And there was one chapter in that book that did talk about companion planting. And, you know, that was sort of like the spark for plant partners, (laughs) because I was like, there's, there's something here. There's ways that we can interplant to attract and lure in these pollinators and ladybugs and lacewings and parasitic wasps and all the good guys that, and, and then they do all the hard work for us. And I'm all about somebody else doing the hard work in the garden, frankly. Me too. (laughs) Jessica Wallace, our guest today. Questions for her uh, about gardening? I hope you'll join in. Could talk flowers, but we're zeroing in a bit on vegetables here, but flowers might come into play. Number to call 800-642-1234. Or you could email us the email address ideas at WPR.org. I wanted to talk a bit, too, about um, small space gardening because many gardeners, many people who listen to this show have a small space to work with. So what tips do you have for gardening in a small space? Sure. So I think um, whether you grow flowers or herbs or vegetables, you can always grow in small spaces in containers. That's probably the easiest no-brainer way to grow plants in small spaces. Because even if you just have a deck or a patio or a balcony, you can get a couple of pots out there. Um, For success in growing containers, it really is sort of threefold in my mind. The first is that you you get the biggest container that you can because it holds a larger volume of soil. And the larger volume of soil you have, the less frequently you have to water. So if you're going to plant something out on your patio in a little tiny six-inch pot, you're going to be watering that guy three, four times a day in the heat of summer, right? So as big as you can with the pot. The second thing is high-quality soil that's rich in organic matter. So you're going to blend potting soil with compost because compost is great at not only adding nutrients and all those good microbes, but also increasing water retention. So again, you're not going to be watering as often. So I would say potting soil, compost, 50-50 blend. That's what you fill your pots with. And then the third would be the plants that you choose to plant in those pots. So everybody wants to grow tomatoes and they're like, let's grow tomatoes in containers. Well, you and I know that if you're going to grow an indeterminate tomato, it can grow six, seven, eight feet tall, right? It's just going to keep growing and keep growing until we get a frost. But by choosing a patio type tomato or a bush type of tomato, which is also known as a determinate type of tomato, or even one of these new dwarf varieties of tomatoes that are on the market now, you're, you're having a plant with a smaller stature, therefore a smaller root system that will do much better in the pot. So when you can partner the size of the pot with the quality of the soil and the type of plant that you're growing, you're almost always guaranteed success as long as you don't go on a three-week vacation and not have the neighbor kid come over to water. Yeah. What What about the pots themselves? Do you, uh, do you have a favorite type or size, uh, style? Yeah, I do. I mean, I have probably, I think last time I counted maybe 60 or 70 pots that I plant in, <laughs> at my own house every year. Yeah, I, and I have pots made of all different materials. I have uh, metal containers that were actually old filing cabinets that I took the drawers out, flipped it on its back and spray painted it and filled it with soil. I grow in those. Uh, I have some made of glazed ceramic. 
which are uh, beautiful, but they're very heavy. So someone who has a balcony wouldn't want to go with something heavy like a glazed ceramic. I have plastic pots. I have um, the fiber stone, which is sort of a combination between fiberglass. And then they have some like little tiny uh, coarse sand in there to give it a, a little bit of a heavier weight. But those are a good choice. So, you know, I say if, you, if you're going to grow food, I prefer not to grow food plants in plastic. Just because there hasn't been a lot of research done on, as to whether those the plastics can come into the food that you're harvesting from those plants. But other than that, really, it's, you know, what suits your space, what you can afford, um, and, and what your plant prefers. I, I think if I had to pick a least favorite, it would probably be terracotta pots. <laughs> um, and, and they're beautiful. I love yeah. them, but they, they dry out so quickly because they're so porous. Yeah. Um, so they're just like, they're not my favorite unless you can seal them. You know, you put like a sealant on the inside of it. So it doesn't, they don't weep so much water out through them. Um, but I do, I love the way they look. Yeah. They're just, you know, they make you water all the time. <laughs> Jessica Wallace, her, our guest today. Questions for her? Give a call. The number is 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at wpr.org. Jill Nadeau's our producer today. Tyler Ditter, our engineer. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. You're listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here with my guest, Jessica Walliser, horticulturist, award-winning author of seven gardening books. It's great to have her with us. We're talking uh, about your garden today. And if you have some questions for her, I hope you'll join in. number to call is 1-800-642-1234. Or you could email us. The email address is ideas at wpr.org, ideas at wpr.org. Well, spring's coming, I guess, <laughs> but um, I know a lot of gardeners are thinking about starting seeds indoors soon. Uh, what are the easiest mistakes to make? Oh, there's so many mistakes to make. That's, that's it's part of the fun of gardening, don't you think, Larry? Like, yes. it's okay to make mistakes, other parts of your life might not be so okay, uh, but really plants are pretty forgiving. You know, everybody's killed their fair share of plants and it's not the end of the world when that happens. Um, and so there's plenty of opportunity to make mistakes. In fact, I, I always welcome them because uh, it's a learning opportunity, right? Sure. Every time you mess something up, you'll learn something. You learn, okay, don't do this the next time. So if we're, if we're talking about probably the most common mistakes that people make with seed starting, it's almost always that they, they're so excited to start seeds that they start them way too early. Yep. So if you're thinking about your garden right now and you're, you live in Wisconsin and you're like, it's time to plant my tomatoes, it's definitely not time to plant your tomatoes. So you have to really be careful to not get overzealous and start stuff too soon. There are certainly plenty of things that you can start from seed now. Um, in particular, the cold season crops, things like your onions. Onions, if you're growing onions from seed, you can start on those right now. You can start on some of the woodier herbs like thyme 
or if you want to try rosemary from seed, you know, they have a longer growing time, longer germination time. You can start those early. You can start perennial seeds right now. If you want to maybe try to grow some coneflowers or milkweed um, or coreopsis, you know, try those from seed. Now's a good time to get started on those. But your warm season crops, like your tomatoes and your basil and your peppers, we're definitely way too early for those. I always tell people to start with your last expected spring frost date and count backwards. So for me, I'm in Pennsylvania. My last expected spring frost is around May 15th. For you guys, I would imagine it's probably later than that. Like maybe around Memorial Day for you, yeah. or maybe even early June, somewhere in there. Yeah, closer to Memorial Day for sure. Okay. So for like tomatoes, you would start with that date and you'd get your calendar and you'd count backwards about four to six weeks before that. And that's when you want to start your tomato seeds indoors. Because what you don't want to have are these big, tall, lanky plants that haven't got enough light. They're they're longing to be put out into real soil instead of potting soil. Um, but it's too cold outside to do that. So you don't, you don't want that to happen. You want your seedlings to be in the perfect condition at the perfect point in their life cycle when it's time to plant them out in the garden. So start with that last fro expected frost date and then count backwards from there. Now your cold season crops, so if you're going to do your cabbage and your broccoli and cauliflower, things that can shrug off cold weather, those you can start more like uh, 10, 8 weeks before that frost date, because they can be put out in the garden much earlier. You can put those out in the garden even three, four weeks before your last frost is expected. So I'll start getting those out in the garden here in Pennsylvania around early April, late March. Um, and maybe I'll put them under a cloche or under a little mini greenhouse or a little cold frame or something like that to give them a little bit of early protection while they're out there. But it's all about good timing when it yeah. comes to seed starting. It really is. Well, we've got more to talk about in that area, but we have a number of folks online with questions. Let's go back to the phones here now and to John in Appleton first. John, hi, thanks for calling. Hi, uh, good morning. Thanks for thanks for the show. Um, my hollyhocks start out great every year, and then toward mid to later summer when they're blooming, they just get chewed up by... I'm not sure if they're leaf beetles or some little thurps. Are there, besides spraying them with like neem oil or something, is there some other kind of uh, plant that I can put around them to maybe draw those things away? Or what's what's the deal with that? Yeah, that's a great question. So can you describe what the leaves of the hollyhock looks like? Are they Are they like skeletonized holes all over them and only the like veins are left? Yep, lace curtains. Yeah. That's what it looks like. Okay, so you mentioned thrips and some other pests there, but this is actually a really distinctive pest. It's a, a certain species of sawfly, and they're the sawfly larva. So the adult little adult sawfly and their tiny little guys will come and lay eggs on the hollyhock leaves. And this is a specific species that does hollyhocks and malva, which are in the same um, genus of plants. So they call them... Um, uh, hollyhock sawflies and they're very hard to see so they feed on the undersides of the leaves so when you start to see that lacing take place flip the leaf over 
and they will be so teeny tiny, like they start out at like an eighth of an inch. And then of course, as they mature through their different um, larval stages, they, they get a little bit bigger. And in the end, they're probably about half an inch long with a, uh, their green bodies and sort of a light brown head. And they really quickly skeletonize those leaves. Um, the good news is, uh, is that horticultural oil when it's sprayed on the undersides of the leaves is a very effective control for sawfly larvae. And you need to spray it on the undersides of the leaves because it actually needs to coat those sawfly larvae themselves. Like it needs, they need to come in contact with the body in order to smother it. Um, if you only had one or two hollyhock plants, you could go out and squish them by hand. But if you have a, you know, a lot of leaves and a lot of plants, it's probably better um, for you to use a horticultural oil spray. Um, so as when far as would companion, you do that? When would yeah, you so do I would it? do that. I would do that as soon as I started to see the the uh, damage. As soon okay. as I started to see the first few small holes, is when I would start checking the undersides of the plants, and then I would spray. And I would probably do horticultural oil maybe like every ten to fourteen days, um, is when you would need to do it because that would also smother any eggs that are on the plant that haven't mm -hmm. hatched yet. So once you do that every ten to fourteen days. The good news is this pest only really has one generation per year. And so you can, you know, it's not something that you have to do over and over again to get good control. You would just do probably two, maybe three applications and you'd have them in check. And let's see, John, did we answer your question there? Yes, but like, what's an example of a commercial name for a horticultural oil? And are these, are these flies going to be here like they've been here it seems like for 50, 10 years or whatever i mean and just... they'll be here forever and ever <laughs> yeah right. they'll be here you 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 will you will likely okay so all insects have you know they'll have a year where they're down in population because maybe we had a really harsh winter or they had more predators around to eat them the season before so they, they'll they'll have years where they're worse than other years but it pretty much if they're here they're they're going to be here and they're going to be sticking around. So it'll be a problem that you'll probably have to face forever and ever and always, which is unfortunate. Um, I, the good news is really though, the damage that they cause, you know, unless they completely defoliate every leaf on that plant, they're not going to outright kill the plant. They're going to make it look not so hot, but they're not going to outright kill it. Um, and hollyhocks are biennial. So after they flower, they typically, you know, they die after they flower. And then you're depending on those seeds and the next generation to, to fill in your hollyhock patch again. So, um, you know, of the pests that are out there, they're probably one of the ones that, uh, you know, they're not so bad. It could be worse. Yeah. And the oil itself, uh, I think John. Oh, wondered... yeah. He asked. Yeah, about brands. So probably the most common is one called All Seasons Horticultural Oil. Um, you can just search for, just search for horticultural oil. I think Bonide also has a brand of horticultural oil and horticultural oil is one of the, the few, um, pesticides that I will recommend because it is safer even under the national organic standards. So as long as you use it according to label instructions, you're still an organic gardener if you use horticultural oil. Uh, and it is pretty widely available either in concentrate form or in ready to spray, you know, like a trigger sprayer that is in a little handheld bottle. So it's pretty widely available. And the is are there companion plants that would work and help? 
You know, I wish there was in this case. I wish there was one that, um, you know, that I could point out and say, hey, this would be a great combination. But I haven't really come across a partnership that was specific to that species of sawfly. So I don't really have much I can recommend. I'm okay. sorry about that because I would love to. There you go, John. So it looks like uh, the oil is the best bet for you if you want to try and keep those leaves as, as as whole as possible. Thank you for calling. Sherry in Fall Creek, on to you now. Hi, Sherry. Hi. <clears throat> Glad to catch you. Um, I have a question about my American violet plants. Um, the first question I had is, when it gets to be summer, would it be good for me to set them outside? And the other question I have is, it's been winter and it's been really cloudy, so I bought one of these lamps that is supposed to be good for the plant, and I turn it on and it stays on for like 8 to 10 hours, and then I turn it off. Um, the, the violets haven't been blossoming lately and I fertilized them and the dirt I have is African violet soil um, but I don't know they just haven't been flowering lately at all so. okay and you've had good luck with them flowering pretty consistently each year prior to this sherry yes yes they actually um, the white ones I have they actually flowered year-round all the time and before mm. Christmas, it kind of quit, and I haven't changed anything. So I don't. I, the only thing I could think of was not enough sunlight. So I bought one of these light jobs that right. three extended arms. And yeah, right, right. So I mean, African violets are one of those plants that um, Grandma made it look made it look so easy, didn't she? Yeah. When she had those African violets lined up on her windowsill and everything, you know, must have been perfect in Grandma's house because everybody's grandma seems to have been really good at growing African violets. Um, I will say that they are usually really consistent bloomers. They're pretty predictable. They're cyclical bloomers, though. They're not in bloom all the time. So they will have several flushes of bloom, and then they'll stop blooming for a while, and they'll go through. It's not dormancy by any means, but it's sort of like a rest period, right, where they're recouping their energy. They're photosynthesizing. They're getting nutrients from the soil. They're building up their stores and their strength to produce another flush of blooms. So typically, we see this happening on a yearly basis, right? Where they'll, they'll flower on an annual basis. Sometimes that flowering can, can go on for two, three, four, five months, which is fantastic. But then they'll take a couple months off. So just because they're not flowering, I wouldn't panic too much about it, Sherry. I think maybe they just need to take a little break uh, before they start producing again. Sometimes, you know, kind of like our kids, if we push them too hard, they rebel a little bit. And so if you're fertilizing and you're giving them light and you're pushing this on them and they're not ready to bloom, you actually could end up over fertilizing, right? Or burning yeah. the foliage with too much light. So sometimes we just need to step back. What I would suggest is wait maybe three, four months and then start a fertilization program and, and try to get them to come into flower again. Um, if they've always done well in that location, never complained, you've had them for years in that site, I wouldn't start messing with anything else. I would just give them time to build up those energy stores again. There you go, Sherry. Thank you so much. Good luck with those African violets. 
You can join in too. Number to call 800-642-1234 or email to ideas at wpr.org. Let's go to Hedda in Mercer next. Hi, Hedda. Hi, uh, maybe this is off the subject, but I have a question about blueberries. Sure. And my, um, my problem with them is they develop these witches' brooms. And they might be just a lovely, healthy plant one year, and then the next year, you know, these witches' brooms that are just like a cluster of branches, and they don't, of course, produce any fruit, and the whole plant just seems to um, be a pain in the butt. Interesting. Do you grow them, uh, uh, Jessica? I do. Yeah. I have never heard of anybody talking about a witch's broom in a blueberry plant, but they're very, you know, they're very common in certain types of evergreens and furs. Um, But it's, as I understand with witch's broom, it's actually a fungus that infects the branches that causes that um, mutation. It causes the witch, witch's broom, which is where the branches get really dense. They grow out in sort of a, as she described, a clump or a cluster. Yeah. Uh, and they often recommend that you prune them out of the plant. Um, if you are using a pair of pruners or a pair of loppers that you are using on a, a witch's broom, and then you're using it again on that plant in another spot, you could actually be spreading that fungal organism, which would be spreading the witch's broom potential, right? So it's always recommended when you do things like prune, and whether that's blueberries or any plant, that you, before you move from one plant to the other, that you disinfect the blades of your pruner. So I actually use a spray disinfectant, like a Lysol spray, or you can use a 10% bleach solution and dip them in that. Or you can even use like a, um, a sanitizing wipe or uh, rubbing alcohol or something like that to make sure that that pathogen is killed and you're not actually spreading it from one plant to the other or even within that, that same plant. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, I, I don't know that you can... Um, ever get rid of that witch's broom it's it's not a a fungal thing that you can you can spray a fungicide on and cure it and it will never have it i think it's always going to be in that plant Uh, at this point once they have it they have it so your choice is to either get rid of that plant and replace with other blueberries maybe a little bit further away from um, I think a fir tree is actually the co-host with a uh, witch's broom fungus on blueberries. So further away from any fir trees um, and not replanting a blueberry in that same site. I think that's going to be your best bet. Uh, or maybe just really making sure your, your pruning equipment is clean so you're not spreading it from one plant to the other. There you go, Hannah. Thank you very much uh, for calling. Appreciate it. Uh, email from John. Uh, and I uh, heard this on garden on this show uh, many years ago and used successfully ever since, which is plant radishes around your squash plants, cucumbers, and cantaloupes to uh, deter vine borers. And I believe you, yeah, I, have you written about that? I believe I have not written about that particular plant partnership, and I haven't seen any research on that particular plant partnership. Um, and radishes, I don't, 
I can't speak to whether or not that's effective, but with companion planting, what I always say is when you partner plants together, there's very little damage that you can do. So if that is working for you, John, keep doing it. You're never, it's never going to hurt the plants to put your radish and your squash together uh, by any means. It's not like it's going to be detrimental in any way. Um, it's just that I haven't seen any research to that, but hey, that's no reason not to do it. I think I've heard of radishes, uh, planting radishes around tomato plants for something that sticks in the back of my head, but I can't well, that's remember what I why. I, I talked about that earlier. It was radishes that's, with tomatoes for the flea beetles, for the flea beetles. Yeah. That, that is right. But yeah, if, John, if that's uh, working and we talked about it on the show, I'm glad to know that you've kept that up and uh, it's been helpful for you. Um Carol in Wausau called to ask what she can do about Japanese beetles. And Japanese beetles, I don't know how bad they are in Pennsylvania. I think you got them before we got them. Uh, they sort of Yeah, lucky us. They went from <laughs> east to west across the country, and, and we have them now. Uh, and yeah. had them for quite a while, actually. Yeah, I think they're almost coast to coast now uh, at this point. Um, and obviously they're an introduced pest. They're native to the Asian continent. Um, and they were introduced here, I believe, in the 40s or 50s. Um, and they've sort of one of those species that has just taken over. And they do not have many natural predators here. So they're, that's why we have these big population explosions of Japanese beetles. And they're pretty much like clockwork when they emerge as adults from the ground. Uh, for us here in Pittsburgh, it's usually in the last week of June, although that seems to be pushing up. You know, it's becoming earlier and earlier every year. Uh, I think in my mind, thanks to climate change, but uh, mm -hmm. I don't know when I would imagine you're probably a few weeks behind us being a little bit further north. So you're probably seeing them maybe late June or even into early July where they start to emerge. So they're those little those white grubs that feed on the roots of turf grass, grass and ornamental plants. Um, and then, of course, they turn into that copper colored beetle that loves to eat our roses and our blueberry plants. And grapes. So, and grapes and all, all, I think they eat over 300 different host <laughs> plants. So a tremendous number of ornamental and edible plants fall victim to them. They're obviously easiest to control when they're in their larval stage because they're in the soil. They're not moving around. They're easier to target. So I, if you want to control them in their larval stage, um, I, I like to recommend beneficial nematodes which are these they're microscopic roundworms that you actually spray, you hook a hose end sprayer up to the end of your hose and you distribute them on your lawn with water. So you spray them over your lawn and they burrow down into the soil and they seek out the Japanese beetle larva. And they're, they're very targeted, so they're not going to hurt your earthworms. They're not going to hurt, um, you know, other beneficial organisms that live in your soil. They're going to go straight for those Japanese beetle grubs. Um, and they're pretty widely available now. You can just do an internet search for um, beneficial nematodes for Japanese beetle grub control, and you'll come up with lots of companies that sell them. They're a living product, so they're usually sold either in a sponge that you put in the water or a powder that you put in the water. They have to be refrigerated, and you do that on a yearly basis. Every spring, you would put these on your lawn. 
um, and they are a wonderful control for the larva. The adults are a little bit different, right? They can fly. They can come over from your neighbor's house. They can go to your neighbor's house. If you're lucky, they'll go over there. Uh, so they're a little bit harder to control as adults. The, the best way to control them is with a physical barrier. So I like to use row cover, which is that spun bound lightweight fabric or insect netting, which you can get readily now, even tool, like the fabric tool that you mm -hmm. use for bridal veils, you can cover plants for just the first two or three weeks after the beetles emerge to protect them from the heaviest feeding, because that's really the heaviest feeding period when they really start to congregate. So the physical barrier is always, always, I always cover my blueberries with insect netting because of the Japanese beetles. So that's a, that's a really good one. Companion planting, Interestingly enough, there is a very tall annual plant called Kiss Me Over the Garden Gate. It's very, very easy to grow from seed, and it gets 10 foot tall in one growing season with these really beautiful pink pendulous flower clusters, and the Japanese beetles adore it. So I always interplant my blueberry bushes with Kiss Me Over the Garden Gate, and the Japanese beetles congregate on that and leave my blueberry bushes alone. So that's a good companion plant partnership to help with those Japanese beetles. Ricardo in Richland Center. We'll go to you now. Hi, Ricardo. Yeah, good morning. Um, I have a question. I'm once again trying to grow a Tahitian double gardenia, which is a very tough plant, I think, to grow in Wisconsin. Uh, it's indoors, obviously, and it's in a pot. Uh, I've noticed in the last couple of days it has kind of droopy leaves at the bottom and some of the larger leaves at the top of the plant have a kind of a powdery mildew type of a substance that feels a little bit sticky. Uh, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on what I can do to try to save this plant. I've tried this again and again and I never seem to succeed for very long. That's because Tahitian gardenias are not really supposed to grow in Wisconsin. So that could be a little bit to do with why you're having so much trouble. But listen, trust me, I totally get wanting to grow tropical plants in a cold climate because my house is full of them, right? So I'm all up for giving it a go. Can I ask, uh, Ricardo, how long you have had this particular plant? Just a couple of weeks. Uh, I, okay. I, I got it a couple of weeks ago and, and I transplanted it. I put it in a larger pot with... I think uh, cactus soil is what I use because I know they like a very kind of uh, porous and uh, soil with good drainage. And I'm, I'm just sort of keeping an eye on it. It's got one blossom that's trying to open and the, the blossom won't open completely as if it's uh, not real happy. Yeah. Okay. So I know you can't take back what you already did, but I would just say for the future, when you, when you acquire a new plant, whether it's a Tahitian gardenia or something else, when you acquire a new plant, particularly a house plant, and you're bringing it into your home environment, that's not really the time to transplant it because it's already going to go through a whole heck of a lot of adjustments to go from the light level where it was grown, which was probably a greenhouse with super bright light, into the light levels and temperature and lower humidity of your home. So it's got a lot of adjustments to happen. And when you throw repotting on top of that, uh, where suddenly it, it, its roots are now having a new and a different soil and you've disturbed them and there's probably transplant shock. So typically I say when you're bringing a new plant and let them acclimate for several months before you go through that transplantation process, um, just because it's sort of a slower go for them. 
Um, I do think that you're going to have to monitor the water really, really uh, religiously with that plant and don't go on autopilot. So don't be, you know, every 10 days or every seven days or every 14 days, you have to feel the weight of the pot. You have to put your hand, finger in the soil, feel how dry it is. And sometimes if your home is on the drier side and the heater's running more, it might be every five days. Other times it might be every 14 days. You really need to base it on the weight of the pot and the dryness of the soil. I do think you have a pest issue though. Yeah. When you describe stickiness on those upper yep. leaves, that is a big sign that you probably have a sap sucking insect. And my guess would probably be scale. Yeah. So for that, you're going to want to look on the leaves, upper and lower side, and on the stems and on the leaf stems for little bumps. And those little bumps are probably a scale insect. And they excrete. They excrete a sticky excrement called honeydew, and that's what makes that stickiness on the leaf surface. So I think you kind of got kind of a quadruple whammy going on there with that plant. Um, The horticultural oil, as long as it's labeled for gardenias or insecticidal soap, would probably be the two that I would recommend that you try. But confirm that you find those pests first and make sure that you read the label to ensure that it's um, it's, you know, safe for use on gardenias in particular because it can be pretty sensitive. Good luck, Ricardo. Thank you so much for calling. Jessica Wallace, sir, our guest today, horticulturist, award-winning author of several gardening books. Great to have her with us on Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. You're listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here with expert gardener Jessica Walliser, horticulturist, award-winning author. It's great to have her back to be with us. Questions for her, give a call at 800-642-1234 or email to ideas at wpr.org. And uh, Christina in Glenwood is up next with a question. Let's go there. Hi, Christina. Hi there. Thank you. I would like advice for growing rosemary and figs, such as the Black Mission fig, indoors. Okay. Christina, are you talking about growing them year-round indoors or just in the wintertime? Well, If they require being outside in the summer, then I would do that. But otherwise, just the way you would grow any house plant, what would be the best way to manage both of those? Sure. So typically, we'll start. There are two very different plants here. So let's start with the rosemary. Um, So one thing both of these plants do have in common, however, is that they really should be outside. Um, They're not there's house plants are house plants because they can survive inside of a house typically uh the conditions that we have in homes are very different than outdoor growing conditions so you won't often find rosemary or figs uh on you know house plant lists because they do typically grow better outside um that's not to say you couldn't give it a go right again i'm all about that experimentation for sure uh, rosemary is not hardy in wisconsin i think even the hardiest variety which is called arp probably won't survive your winters up there so often we do have to move rosemary plants indoors for the winter 
Um, they are obviously from the Mediterranean region, so they love really coarse and porous soil. Uh, but at the same point, they don't really love that soil to completely dry out. So they like consistent moisture, but not soggy moisture. Uh, important to give them really nice bright light as well. Again, being from the Mediterranean region, protect them from drafts, um, whether hot or cold. We don't want to have them on top of the hot heat, heat register or by the door where people are opening and closing it all winter long. Um, and with, with something like rosemary, we don't want to do any fertilization in the winter because we don't want to encourage active growth when we just want the plant to make it through the winter. So we would only fertilize a plant like that in the spring, summer, and early fall. Um, in the wintertime, you would lay off of, of the fertilization. So you probably, if both of those plants going to have the most luck trying to grow rosemary indoors versus growing the fig indoors. Um, I am not sure I'm the person to talk to you about successfully growing figs because I, I was making, I have a friend of mine who has like, and my mom too, has this amazing fig tree and it goes hundreds of figs in a big pot on her patio every year. I had a Chicago hardy fig in a giant 30 gallon pot, Larry. I had it for probably 10 years. I never got one darn fig on it and I did everything right and by the book, but I think, I don't know if I got a dud one. <laughs> or what happened. Uh, but I do know that they do like to be outdoors. They need to go through a dormant period. All their leaves fall off. Usually you have to overwinter them in a garage or under stacks of soil. So, you know, they're, it's a pretty artful dance with a fig, um, especially if you're talking about a fruiting fig. And I think that you are talking about a fruiting fig. Um, again, I would put it in a pot, have it outdoors in the summer, and then overwinter it ideally in a in a cool or cold location like a garage drag it in to the garage for the winter let it drop all its leaves shift into a natural dormancy there and then drag it back outside in the spring when the danger of frost has passed and that's really where you're going to have the most luck growing a fig there you go good luck christina thank you so much uh, for calling appreciate your call I want to go back to seeds. I feel like, yeah. I have to say, Larry, I feel yeah. like a Debbie Downer a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you have pests on your gardenia. Oh, no, you can't do this rosemary. And so, like, I, don't, I don't want to bash anybody's dreams, but I do want to keep it real, right? Like, you know, you have to do things right if you want to, you know, succeed. But there's also a little bit, you know, you want to do some experimenting, too. So it's a fine balance, but I'm not meaning to be a Debbie Downer, I promise. <laughs> oh, you're not. You're not at all. Let's talk about uh, seeds again and and starting them indoors. And you did a nice job, I thought, talking about the timing and, and that sort of thing. What kind of growing medium do you recommend? And I, I was really interested in your soil blocking technique as well. Oh, yeah. So we just talked about that on Savvy Gardening. In fact, we have a couple of new articles that have gone up in the past maybe month or so that talk about seed starting and some really good tips for um, starting seeds maybe in, in a new and different way than what you've always done before. And those new and different ways right now that are really hot and popular are soil blocking and winter sowing. So with soil blocking, you're taking a soilless seed starting growing mix, which you can buy at your local nursery. They're mixes that are specific for seed starting. 
Or we even have an article on there on making a DIY seed starting mix where you're blending your own seed starting mix. And it's this method there, these metal, let's call them a contraption or a tool that allows you to compress that seed starting medium into blocks. So you use really wet mix and you pack it into these blocks and then you squeeze this sort of trigger handle and it presses them out into blocks into your seeding tray. They have blocks that have, you know, small, little, small, they're only one inch cubes and then they have four inch cubes. They even have six inch cubes of soil that you can make. And of course, what size you choose will depend on what size seed that you're growing. But you don't actually use those plastic cell packs from the nursery. You just grow them in these blocks and you water from the bottom. And what's great about them is the the, the roots are allowed to grow unrestricted this way. They, They don't become pot bound. They just grow out into the uh, soil that's in the next door neighbor's cube. And then when you're ready to plant them or up pot them into a larger pot, you sort of just crack them apart, tease the roots apart and up pot them or plant them out into the garden. It's really a cool way to start seeds that's good for the plant. And it's also good for the planet because you're not using that plastic. Um, And Winter sowing. Have you done winter sowing before, Larry? Have you tried that? I've tried it on, on just on lawn, on my lawn. Okay, okay, okay. So so winter sowing is really trendy right now, too. And what's cool about it is you get to plant seeds in the winter. So if you're itching to get your green thumb going, try winter sowing. This is where seeds of perennials and cold hardy crops uh, are planted in, most people do them in milk jugs. So they'll cut the milk jug up about maybe four inches from the bottom. They'll cut it almost all the way around, only leaving an inch connected. So it kind of opens like a floppy mouth or something like Mm -hmm. that. They fill the bottom, poke poke holes in the bottom, fill it with soil, sow the seeds on top of that soil, close up the uh, jar, the top of the jar, and then they'll put like duct tape around to hold it together. And then they stick those jars outside. And it allows the seed to go through the natural stratification process of the freeze-thaw cycles that are happening outside. And then the seeds will germinate at exactly the right time, sort of like the way Mother Nature Mm. intended them to do. I love doing my lettuce. I love doing my um, onion seeds with winter sowing, perennials with winter sowing, any of the brassicas you can do with winter sowing. And you just put, you can do it right now. And put them out in the garden and all the jars are lined up or jugs, plastic milk jugs lined up out in the garden and the seeds will germinate when the time is right and then they can be transplanted out into the garden. So it's a really cool process. So again, on SavvyGardening.com, there's a whole article about it. It's cool. It it uh, it really does uh, sound cool to me. And the block, uh, soil blocking technique, I, th- I think is wonderful as well. And it's something... Uh, that I definitely want to try, and it doesn't sound like it's too expensive for the, the for that equipment either. So it's not, and you 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 know you can have you have it forever. It's yeah, a, you know it's it's made of metal, so you're gonna have it for a long time. Jessica Walliser, our guest today, horticulturist and award-winning author, of seven gardening books. It's great to have her with us. Her her book, uh, Amazon bestseller, Plant Partners: A Science-Based Guide to Companion Planting for the vegetable garden and her uh, website as well. Uh, you can go to uh, 
to uh, SavvyGardening.com, and Savvy spelled with two Vs, SavvyGardening.com. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio. Listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network, Larry Mueller here, and my guest Jessica Wallerson, uh, Walliser with us today. She is the award-winning author of seven gardening books, co-founder of the gardening website SavvyGardening.com. Great to have her along, and certainly if you have questions, I hope you'll join in. You need some help starting seeds, questions about insects or disease or varieties of plants. Number to call, 800-642-1234, 800-642-1234, or email to ideas at wpr.org. Uh, Jessica, Rachel emailed to ask um, if nematodes might work for lily beetles as well. Uh, she had lily beetles for the first time last summer, worried about them returning this spring any advice on lily beetles would be useful yeah oh rachel i feel so badly for you we haven't i'm just about to knock some wood right now but we have not had red lily beetles in pennsylvania yet but i'm so sorry to hear that they're in wisconsin i know they're all over new england right now and so obviously they're spreading west and uh such a shame because these are little beetles they are bright red and they attack all types of true lilies, not day lilies, because those are not actually true lilies, but the members of the lilium genus. So your beautiful Asiatic lilies and your ornamental lilies, like it's just, it's such a shame. So unfortunately, the beneficial nematodes will not do anything for your red lily beetles. Uh, but one product that, that will, other than hand picking, and thankfully lily beetles are fairly easy to hand pick as both larval and adults. Um, so if you go out and check your plants, maybe twice a week uh, and squish any ones that you happen to find on the foliage, um, that's very helpful. Uh, if you needed to have a product control, I would suggest one called Spinosad. It's S-P-I-N-O-S-A-D. And Spinosad is, it is, again, it's um, the um, Organic Materials Review Institute or OMRI. So this is a product that is safe to use even on certified organic farms. Um, you want to watch, though, when you spray it. Don't spray it when there's active pollinators around. So maybe do it first thing in the morning or later in the evening when the pollinators have gone away from the garden because it can affect pollinators. Um, and obviously follow label instructions. But the spinosad is really good for different types of beetles in both their larval stage and their adult stage. So it is something that really is quite effective on the red lily beetle. And it actually has a, a minor residual effect on the plant so it's not like horticultural oil where it has to come in contact with the plant instead the spinosad if you get it on the leaves it will stay on the leaves and the then when the pest comes along and feeds on it it ingests it and then dies so but i wouldn't do it until you start to see the lily beetles and just be real careful about when and how you use it 
Uh, Stewart emailed, uh, and this has to do with Japanese beetles. Uh, Stewart said, according to the National Invasive Species Information Center, the Japanese beetle was first discovered uh, here in 1916, but was probably introduced around 1911, possibly in the soil of imported ornamental plants. I would believe it. Yeah, so it's been around longer than I thought. That's really interesting um, to hear. So, yeah, that's great. So a couple of, couple of decades before I thought, and it wouldn't surprise me one bit if they came in the soil as larvae. Um, you know, that's probably a really easy way to transport them from one continent to the next. Yeah, and then it probably takes a while to get those numbers up to mm-hmm. where we really start to notice them. And then once that gets going, it's that's the end of it. <laughs> exactly, yeah, especially if there's no, you know, natural predators here for them. In their native zone, they have all kinds of natural predators. But, uh, but you know, here in North America, now they're st- we, we are starting to see them have some natural predators and there actually is a fungal organism that uh, kind of also like what happened with the gypsy moth caterpillars where there was a fungal organism that is controlling them and helping us manage them now. Same thing is happening with the Japanese beetles too. So, but I don't think we'll ever have, you know, they'll never, it will always be out of balance because they didn't evolve here. So, you know, it's such a a small blip in evolutionary time that it's going to be a long time um, until we have that kind of control. Usually, or at least the experience here has been, uh, when you get them, they're like everywhere. And this may go for a few years, a couple, three years. And then they seem to, I don't know, die back or whatever. And, uh, I didn't even see one this past year in Madison. And I can tell you that the grapevines were just absolutely covered with them uh, several years back. So Yeah, yeah. Everything in nature is cyclical, right? So you have years that are good and years that are bad in the garden with pests, with particular crops. So that's just the way that nature rolls, you know, really, really cyclical. Mike in Reedsburg, thank you for calling. What's on your mind? Hello. Hi, what can we do for you? Hey, thanks for getting me on the show, Larry. I really appreciate it. I enjoy your podcast. I listen to it every Friday. Oh, wonderful. But, uh, that being said, for Christmas, I got gifted a bonsai tree set. It came with like four different kinds, a red one, a purple one, a regular one, and like instructions on how to start the seeds. But it doesn't say when to start the seeds. Do I do that now? Do I do that in spring? Do I do it in do summer? You, do you know what kind of plant it is? Well, it's it's supposed to be like a Mr. Miyagi bonsai tree. So I don't know the exact names. I know one of them was like a spruce. One of them was like a flower or a fire or something. One of them has like purple leaves, but they're all supposed to be like those mini bonsai, you know, karate kid, Mr. Miyagi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's it's really tough to say when to plant those seeds without knowing exactly what species of plants that you're dealing with, but it sounds like they're all different ones. Um, you know, here's the thing with those kits. 
you know, they're sometimes put together for convenience and to have a fun thing to try, whether or not it's actually a, a species that's easy to grow from seed. I don't know, uh, but you have them. So give it a go. And I would actually go ahead and start them now so that, the, you know, they're probably going to require a little bit of a longer time for germination. Most tree seeds do. Uh, and I think that you're probably in some cases going to have better luck actually trying them with that winter sowing than you would trying them indoors under grow lights. So you could try that as well. Um, yeah, it's really, it's tough to say without knowing exactly what species of plant that, that you're talking about. Mike, uh, good luck with that. Yeah. You can start them now, or if you want to wait till spring, you know, what the heck, wait another couple months. But I, I, I think it's, why not start them now? <laughs> yeah, and well, especially yeah, if you, you know. have if you have like a grow light set up inside, you know, yeah. you can can give it a go. But if if they're hardy trees, that's the other thing, right? Are these trees that are hardy in Wisconsin? Because if they are, you could winter sow them. You know, you can sow them outside now in a milk jug because they're you know they're plants that are fully hardy, and the seeds are just going to sit there until their natural time comes to germinate. Uh, but again, tough to say without knowing what they are. Thanks, Mike. Uh, good luck with that. Appreciate your call. You know, we were talking about uh, lighting, or you've mentioned lighting more than once on the show, of course. And uh, someone was wondering about the best LED lights for starting seeds. Yeah. You know, conveniently enough, we also have a big article on that on on Savvy Gardening. If you go to SavvyGardening.com and there's a little search box there, type in LED lights or LED grow lights. And we have a whole article. um, One of the other women that co-owns the site with me um, has a lot of different LED grow light systems. Some are tabletop, some are like three-tiered systems, some are single plant systems. And she really has done a lot of experimenting to find out which one works best for each different situation. Um, so, so I would recommend that you check that article out. Um, the other place I know has really great LED grow lights is Gardner's Supply Company. So if you don't get this catalog, you should, and at the very least, you should go to their website. It's Gardner Supply Company, and they're a Vermont-based company, and they have all kinds of cool products for gardeners. And they have several different high-quality LED grow light sets, um, depending on what your needs are. So for seed starting, it might be tabletop, or it might be like a three- or four-tiered system. Um, Those are the ones that I like the best for seed starting, because I can grow a lot of trays of seeds underneath those. Uh, But if you're just starting one or two trays, then a tabletop grow light would work fine as well. So it just kind of depends on what you're looking for. What I wouldn't do is just automatically go to like Amazon or something like that and buy whatever is cheapest there because you just really can't be assured of the quality of the bulbs, that they're throwing the right wavelengths of light, um, and and that they're going to be obviously sturdy and very long lasting. So, you know, like anything, you get what you pay for. So make sure you buy a quality light system if you plan on using it for many years. You've mentioned, too, uh, as we've gone along, um, uh, about attracting good bugs to um, your garden. And that's important. And, you know, what's the best approach on that? You want, you want to plant some things that will uh, attract those good bugs. 
Yeah. So it's really all about attaining the the balance, right? The natural balance, because long before we human came, humans came along, everything was in balance on this planet, right? So you had all of these beneficial insects keeping pests in control, which kept the plants healthy, which kept the mammals healthy. So it was always this fabulous, you know, system. And then we came along and kind of gummed up the works a little bit. So your goal here is not necessarily to go back to sort of what it was pre-human because that's never going to happen. But instead, it's achieving a balance by increasing the biodiversity of your garden. So trying to plant as many different species of flowering plants that have different bloom times, different flower shapes, different flower colors, different heights and structures of the plants themselves. Get as many uh, species of plants in your garden as possible, ideally choosing ones that are native to your region, if at all possible. And that biodiversity is then going to provide greater and richer food sources for all of these beneficial insects and going to help them stick around and increase population and therefore help you control pests. Um, But there are certain flower structures that tend to be um, more often used as a food source for beneficial insects. And these tend to be the tiny, tiny flowers. Because if you think about a ladybug, a ladybug does not have the same mouth part that a bee has. A bee will have a long tongue, a tapered mouth part to get nectar from deep down inside of a flower. A ladybug doesn't have that. Like a butterfly has a proboscis, right? Like a straw-like mouth part. Ladybugs, lacewings, they don't have that. So we need to provide them with tiny, shallow flowers. So things like sweet alyssum. Members of the carrot family, which would be like fennel and cilantro and dill and Queen Anne's lace and angelica, you know, uh, uh, golden alexanders are another one. So those sort of umbrella-shaped flowers, like picture a dill blossom, those umbrella-shaped clusters of tiny, tiny flowers, those tend to be really good for beneficial insects. So you just want to really increase the diversity. You want to stop using pesticides of any type in your garden, if at all possible, uh, because they can impact the good pests as well. And then you want to let them have some habitat year round. So rather than mowing down your garden, cleaning everything up all winter, you know, having your garden look like your living room all winter, instead, leave it be a little wild in the wintertime. Leave your plant stems standing, leave the leaf debris collect in there, and that will create habitat for them so that they can survive in your garden year round and really help you control those pests. Boris in Wausau has a comment for a question for us. Hi, Boris. Thank you for calling. Yeah. Hi, thank you. Um, I have a magnolia marrow that I planted about six years ago in a pre-existing hole in my yard. Um, the tree uh, was about six feet tall. It's still about six foot tall. Um, it makes flowers. Uh, it makes no flowers. It makes leaves every year. Um, it's neither dying nor is it growing. And I wonder um, what I could do to entice it and actually being bigger and uh, giving us those beautiful flowers we were hoping for. Yeah, so um, the Merrill magnolia is actually a type of star magnolia. Um, It's a hybrid magnolia. It gets, what's great about it is a wonderful small tree. It gets maybe 20 feet tall, but after 
probably 20 or 30 years. It can get much taller than that. It can get like 50 or 60 feet, but it's, it's pretty slow in its growth rate. And that's one of the most appealing things about this particular variety of magnolia is because it is a little bit of a slower grower so that people who have maybe smaller landscapes, smaller backyards, and are looking for a smaller flowering tree, this would be a good choice for them. So it's going to be a slower grower. And I think that's probably why you're seeing a little bit of um, uh, stagnant happening with its growth rate, because that's actually an appealing thing for people. It's also really winter hardy, which is really nice, especially for really north climate, you know, northern climates like you. It's one of the star magnolias that has um, increased winter hardiness, which is really nice. So I think as far as like what you can do to encourage it to grow, um, if it's flowering properly for you each year, chances are it has enough sun where it is, which is really good. Um, you could use an acid-specific fertilizer like Hollytone uh, on that plant. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't overdo it though. Like you don't want to go with too much uh, because that can backfire sometimes, but maybe a cup or two of Hollytone around the, um, the root zone of that plant. Uh, I would say probably every other year in the early spring might help generate some new growth and, and get it get it amped up and going a little bit more than it is right now. And Boris, good luck. Appreciate your call very much. Uh, seed catalogs, I have some. Uh, they're starting to arrive in the mailboxes. Uh, do you have some favorites? Oh my gosh, it's like asking me, everybody says it's like asking me to pick my favorite child, right? My favorite seed catalogs. I shop from so many of them. Uh, oh gosh, I have to pick favorites. Okay, um, for vegetables, I really like Territorial Seed Company. And I really like a company called High Mowing Seeds. High Mowing, uh, they're organic, they're certified organic seeds. So um, if that's important to you, High Mowing is a great choice of varieties. And often you'll see them in seed racks in good quality nurseries as well. So you wouldn't even have to order from the catalog. You'll often find them there. I love Renee's Garden Seeds uh, and Botanical Interests. Those are two that I really like for their flowers just as much as for their vegetables as well. But there's just, there's so, so many out there. Um, for yeah. perennials, I like I like Walter's Gardens and Bluestone perennials. So uh, we have so many choices out there nowadays. I like the uh, whole seed catalog mm -hmm. uh, from Baker Creek Seed Company. Uh, Jared Gettle is uh, the the unusual varieties and the colorful varieties that you get. I mean, the catalog's just kind of fun to read. <laughs> it really is. The photography in it is beautiful. Uh, and they always have the most unusual varieties from really all around the globe. And as you mentioned, like the diversity in the colors and the forms, like, you know, you're looking at the cucumbers and they're not all green and straight, right? There's like purple cucumbers and yellow cucumbers and white ones. And it's just really, really fun if you have the space to experiment Diving into a catalog like that and picking a couple new varieties new to you uh, every year is a really fun way to find new favorites. 
I think I'm going to have, I think we have Jer Gettle probably usually have him on, on around the end of February. So we'll probably be talking with him on garden. He's fun to talk to, too. He has great <laughs> stories, yes. uh, you know, of his family's travels around the globe to collect these seeds. And I mean, he can, he can tell you some crazy <laughs> stories about how they get these seeds. It's really neat, really a neat life he lives. Well, as long as we're talking about different kinds of seeds uh, or maybe new seeds, are you, is there are there you hoping to try some new uh, see, new plants this year? Oh yes, I am. In fact, um, your listeners don't know this, but you and I can see each other right now, even though we're very far apart from each other. But I'm looking all over my messy desk right now for where my territorial seed catalog is because it's dog-eared and pages are marked <laughs> on there with all the new stuff that I want to try this year. But I had such um, uh, we use a lot of carrots in my house like a ton of carrots. And so I'm super excited to grow some of the different varieties that they're offering, the colored carrots, the purple ones, yeah. and atomic red and purple dragon. Um, I just love to grow those, but I'm really going to focus this year on two carrots that I grew last year that I loved candy snacks and sugar snacks. And I grew what the probably the longest carrot I ever grew in my life. Like it was almost as long as my arm. No joke. It was huge. And I and it was so sweet. And I cannot wait to grow those again. I'm going to buy three seed packets of each of them because I loved them so much last year. So that's when I'm really, really excited uh, to grow again this year. Well, I'm, uh, yeah, you mentioned carrots and uh, Tyler Ditter and I were talking about our weekend and I, I was thinking about a roast in the uh, crock pot uh, with some carrots and potatoes and onions, put that in on uh, Sunday morning and uh, enjoy the uh, aroma during the day and uh, when the uh, Packers football game comes on that evening, I'll have a ready-made dinner. <laughs> that sounds divine for me, except for the Packers part. Uh, oh yeah, for <laughs> it sounds sure. divine. Because our Steelers are out now, so we, I don't. I don't have to worry about putting a roast in to watch a game. That's for sure. Maybe we'll watch a movie at my house and put it. But yeah, carrots from the garden, and we're still eating carrots from last year's garden because uh, I have, you know, I pack them in plastic bags in the fridge. So we're still enjoying those. So I wish I could federal express you some so they could have them in your, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't want the, uh, the Packers to get further because of my carrots. So yeah. <laughs> Jessica, always a pleasure. You'll come back and be with us again sometime. I hope. I hope, I hope so. It's always a joy, Larry, to chat with you. It's the best. Thank you. Jessica Walliser, her uh, she has seven uh, gardening books that she's written, and go take a look at her website. You'll find out all the information there about the books, and uh, a whole lot more information, even about some of the things we were talking about today. SavvyGardening.com, and Savvy is spelled with two V's. SavvyGardening.com. Great to have her with us, and she will be back. We hope she will be back. Uh, we'll be talking about some interesting people, places, and events with our Wisconsin Magazine editor, Mike Bino, on Monday, and then some tips on quitting smoking. Thanks for listening. Stay with us. Lots in store on the Ideas Network. I'm Larry Mueller.